was two weeks ago that I announced my intention to return to studying the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at least those portions that we did not get to in our first movement through the Gospel story as we endeavor to do a harmony of all four that brought us up to the point of the feeding of the 5,000. And again, I'm not exactly certain how we're going to review all of that past material, if we're going to do it at all, or just pick up from there. haven't really made those decisions yet. But what I do hope to do, at least in the next number of weeks through the early coming of the new year, is I want to continue to introduce or reintroduce these books. I've already done Mark's Gospel. This morning we're going to do Luke's Gospel. Next week we're going to do Matthew's Gospel. And then we're going to take Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus and lead it to have that portion of Scripture lead us up through uh, the Christmas uh, celebration. So that's what my plans are. Um, and, but in the, endeavoring to go back to this old material, which is ever new, it never grows old, uh, though you completely complete a book of study, you need to always be going back to reading and considering and meditating about things you formerly have studied because it's always interesting how much you've learned in the time since you visited a particular portion of scripture. Uh, I preached on Romans some years ago and now I'm doing it again in the Sunday school. And uh, yeah, I would think that it's a marvel how much I've learned except I realize how much I still need to learn. So I'm just beginning to learn what these books of scripture contain and their, their importance, their significance, uh, the uh, wealth of instruction that is to be found in it. It's a never-ending feast of the soul to go back to God's Word over and over and over again. But to best do this, I thought it would be good to do this work of reintroducing each of these Gospels and having taken up Mark's, Mark's portrait of our Lord Jesus um, in the Gospel that was likely the first one to be written and also the shortest well, those two aspects of Mark's Gospel. It's the shortest of the Gospels, and it's also the probably first written of the Gospels. Uh, this morning we're going to turn to what was likely the last written and the longest. So, talking about contrast. Uh, we're going uh, to look at uh, the Gospel according to Luke this morning. Not only is Luke the longest of the four Gospels, it's also the longest book in the New Testament. At least in not so much by chapters. Matthew has 28 and Acts has 28 chapters. Luke has only 24. But look at the size of some of those chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, clearly by verses, it's much the, the, the longest. And together with the second volume of Luke, which is the book of the Acts, Luke and Acts together, both written by the same writer, takes up 27.5% of our New Testaments. And it's an interesting thing that though Luke's written more of the New Testament than any other author, does he really get the kind of credit that he should be getting for that? Not that credit needs to be given, but I mean, we become, we become students of Paul, don't we? You know, Paul's letters, studying Paul's letters, or perhaps even John's gospel or John's letters, the Johannine material. And we don't give this sort of credit to Luke, likely because he was not an apostle, and in Apart from authoring this gospel and authoring the book of the Acts, he was rather a marginal figure in the early church. And yet, he's not an unimportant figure. Because 
Judging from the we sections of the book of Acts, you read the book of the Acts, chapter 16 and onward, you read several lengthy sections in which the one who's doing the narration is now not just saying that Paul did this and Peter did that and someone else did the other thing, but he's saying we did these things. We did these things. So that Luke was himself a companion to Paul, traveling with him from place to place, with him on the second missionary journey as Paul went into Macedonia, with him in the period of the shipwreck recorded in Acts chapter 27. And so several of these sections are notable for the fact that the narrator speaks of we did these things. But not only is he a companion of Paul in his travels, he's mentioned no less than three times in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 4 and verse 14 probably is the best known because it's there we're told that Luke was the beloved physician. Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you in Colossians 4 and verse 14. So Luke was a doctor, Dr. Luke. Now, it's often been said that because Luke was a physician, that he writes his gospel with something of an advanced medical vocabulary. Anybody ever hear that before? That Luke is using specialized words in his gospel? Well, recent study has shown that that's really not the case. You can't really make the case for that because many writers with no medical background at all, like Josephus and Philo and other writers, they all use the same terms Luke uses that describes diseases and maladies and problems that people were having. And there's a scholar, a British scholar, who debunked this notion, and it was humorously said of him by his students, that this scholar's name is Henry Chadwick. He earned his doctorate by taking away Luke's. Well, no, you can't take away Luke's doctorate. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Paul says it, but the fact that he does not use medical language should not diminish his status as a gospel writer. I think it enhances it. Because Luke is not using specialized language, requiring specialized knowledge. He's seeking to communicate in clear language that all can understand. That's the requisite, I think, of a gospel writer, that he writes clearly. And Luke definitely does write clearly about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to reintroduce this gospel by using the same outline that we used for Mark. And that outline had went this way. When we look at the sources for the Gospel of Luke, something of the structure of the Gospel of Luke, and then we're going to look at the story of the Gospel of Luke. So sources, structure, and story. First of all, the sources for the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you were not here when we looked at the sources for Mark's, Mark's Gospel, uh, you perhaps remember that, or so you, don't, you won't remember if you weren't here, but those who were here will remember, some of you weren't here, I'm going to let you know that there's an ancient historian um, who tells us, his name is Eusebius, and he tells us that uh, a man by the name of Papias uh, told us that uh, Mark was the interpreter of Peter. Mark was uh, Peter's sidekick, or, or, uh, and he uh, uh, was under Peter's instruction, Peter's tutelage, and uh, so as one who knew Peter well, he was the beneficiary of the oral tradition that Peter taught wherever he went about Jesus. Whatever Peter taught about Jesus, Mark was a, 
had access to that instruction, all that oral tradition, the stories about Jesus that was passed down from person to person. And then also, Mark wrote in the lifetime of people who were eyewitnesses, including Peter, probably Peter hadn't passed from the scene at that time, although he may have, yet there were many who still lived who were living eyewitnesses. And they functioned sort of as the quality control. Uh, because they could come and say, look, this is not true, what Mark wrote. Uh, Peter didn't teach that, and Jesus didn't teach that, and they could confirm or deny the account that Mark had given. Well, look at the same benefits, the same benefits of that oral tradition, that tradition handed down from those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus. Um, and he gave, and those truths or those uh, uh, eyewitness testimony um, could be confirmed or denied. And so when Luke takes up his pen and he begins to write about Jesus, he's aware. There's this oral tradition that exists. And there's not only this oral tradition and eyewitnesses who can confirm and deny, but there's also something of a written tradition. Luke is the only gospel that has a dedication. It has a statement of uh, purpose in writing that's found in Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. And I want you to turn there. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Here Luke confirms that he is the recipient of the tradition given from the eyewitnesses of the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, but also he had access to other sources as well about Jesus. Because he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Well, the things which have been accomplished among us is the things that Christ has done. The things that Christ has achieved in his death, life, death, resurrection, ascension to the, uh, mad, the, the, to the right hand of the Father. This is the accomplishment of our redemption, the accomplishment of our salvation, the accomplishment of uh, Jesus' finished work. The things that have been accomplished among us by our Lord Jesus, the things that have been done by him, the things that have been taught by him, these are things that Luke is saying, I'm not the first to sit down and write about it. He says, many have undertaken to compile this kind of a narrative. More than likely, Luke was referring to the Gospel of Mark. that had already been written. Maybe Matthew. We don't know. I personally think Matthew likely was written and Luke would have had access to it. But I can't prove it. But I can just assert that I, that's my preference in understanding the order of how these things were written. Likely there were other accounts that did not survive because they were deemed to be defective in some way or perhaps insufficient in some way, and hence they never got to be used in the churches. Mark was used in the churches. Mark was read in the churches. Other narratives like Matthew and John, of course, came to be read in the churches. These were the received Gospels, the received narratives of the things that have been accomplished among us. And Luke now entered in to compile his own narrative of these things. Now, doubtlessly, he used Mark's Gospel. There are passages in his writings that clearly evidence that he was a reader of Mark, sometimes word for word, uh, accounts that parallel what Mark has given to us. There's also parallels with Matthew, 
that sometimes are even closely worded alike. And there's different reasons that scholars give for why that is, but who is dependent on who, or was there some other source that they both were dependent upon? Again, we don't know those things, but the point is that Luke is not doing this in a vacuum. Other accounts have been given. Why do we accept Luke's as an important one? Well, partly because of his association with Paul, partly because he is one who declares to us in his own words that he is committed to an orderly account that he carefully investigated. He says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. In other words, he carefully considered the things that were taught. He investigated the things that were alleged. And then he comes to write, he says, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, there was a man called Theophilus. He's called most excellent. It could be a title of nobility, or it could just be a name for a lover of God. It could be a general name, but it could be an individual person. And Luke is writing this for, he says, for the purpose that you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Luke is concerned to express truth carefully. Truth that he has well considered. He's taken out of his own thoughts anything that would be deemed defective, anything that would be deemed insufficient, any account that was worthless. He uses Mark, he uses Paul's instruction. Um, but another thing, it's likely because Mark, Luke was in a position to do a bit of what I think today we do call investigative reporting about all this. Again, he was a traveling companion of Paul. And one of the things that the gospel, that the book of Acts makes clear is that when Paul came back to Jerusalem with the offering from the Gentile churches to bring to Jerusalem for the needy saints, he was arrested and he was eventually sent to Caesarea where for a period of two years he was held in confinement. And then when Paul, Paul was released, and he actually wasn't released when he was sent to Rome, Luke's with him again. It's another part of the we passages. So there's a two-year period. Paul's imprisoned, and he asks the question, where was Luke? Well, he was in the region around which the very events that he's recording took place. I'm certain that he took that time as one who's concerned to write a gospel, to give his own narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, to talk to the people who personally were involved. I think it's probably not too far-fetched to think that he got his account of the visitation of the angel to Mary from Mary's own lips. Mary herself spoke to Luke about the things that she herself experienced. So he was giving eyewitness testimony to the things that occurred. Again, he's in the environs around Judea, around Galilee, around the areas where these events took place and he could interview and speak to the people who were involved and hence he can carefully trace these things out and present them in a work of investigative reporting about our Lord Jesus. My point to you is Luke had the time for this, he had the access to these people, and he certainly had the interest to do this work and to do it well to do it carefully, and to do it 
diligently. And then the other thing that we need to mention is that far from least, uh, the least consideration, is that like much as Mark had the Old Testament scriptures to refer to, Luke did as well. And the Old Testament is really the source above every other source for which the story of Jesus is rightly to be told. We don't understand Jesus rightly and truly apart from the Old Testament patterns and prophecies and promises that God had given with respect to the one who he promised would come. Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. He's the fulfillment of those Old Testament patterns and prophecies. And it's in Luke's Gospel, perhaps more than in any of the others, that that reality is before us in words. Because we read in the 24th chapter of Luke of how Jesus, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as well as to the 11 later on, showed these disciples, we read from the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so as we study Luke's gospel, we're going to see how the scriptures were quoted over and over again. How even things, as we mentioned about song in the scripture reading earlier, surfaces in Luke, much like the book of Psalms, and the very thought patterns that we find in the book of the Psalms. We find Mary's Magnificat. We find Zechariah's uh, word of prophecy, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and speaking this word of praise that we find in the latter chapter of, uh, latter part of chapter one. Uh, Old Testament scripture clearly is behind so much of what Luke is delivering to us and instructing us in. And so those are the sources, and I think they're good sources. We can trust this book. It's a book written by a man concerned to speak the truth, to instruct this man, this Theophilus, or the church in general, in the very truths most surely believed among us, those things that have been accomplished among us, and to present it in a way that's thorough and clear, in a way that is carefully set out, in a way in which we can be well instructed in the story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Luke takes his sources. He puts pen, pen to, to he takes a pen to a scroll as he writes, and he structures it in a way that is different than Mark. Unlike Mark, who begins his story with the public ministry of Jesus. Luke takes us a little bit further back. It's interesting. Mark begins with the public ministry of Jesus. He says, the gospel of, the Lord, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, John came preaching in the wilderness. He begins with John as the forerunner of Jesus. Luke is concerned to take us back. Maybe one of the reasons he did write this gospel is he looked at Mark and said, you know, it's true, it's good, it's helpful, it's beneficial. Nothing I could complain about, about what Mark wrote, but it's insufficient. Because Mark didn't tell us anything about the origin of Jesus. He didn't tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. He told us about his forerunner preaching in the wilderness. He didn't tell us anything about the forerunner in his birth. And Luke's gospel tells us both of those things. Luke begins by telling us about the birth announcements by the angel Gabriel of both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then he tells us about the births of both John and Jesus. And then he tells us something about their nurture and growth and development of both John and of Jesus. So he takes us back really to the beginning of Jesus in terms of his birth, the birth of his forerunner, his own birth. There's only one gospel that goes further back, and that's John. I guess John was looking at what Mark had written and looked at what Luke had written and said, oh, it's fine, you begin the story with John the Baptist, you begin the story as Luke did, going back to the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, but I'll go you one better. I'm going to take you back to eternity. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's lots of ways to tell the story about Jesus, isn't it? From many different vantage points. His public ministry, going back to his birth, going back to Old Testament prophecy, going back to eternity, and the purposes of God, the triune God, in their love for a fallen world, to provide salvation through a son. Well, Luke's structure, again, goes back to the beginning of the conception of John and of Jesus. So we're dealing with origins at that point. In chapters, chapter 3, we have Jesus coming to full maturity at age 30. John the Baptist as well. And they begin their public ministries. There's the pre preparation of Jesus' public ministry in his baptism in Jordan, and temptation in the wilderness. And Luke also provides a genealogy that probably is Mary's genealogy, also in chapter 3. And then when you come to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it differs greatly from Mark in this one respect. Mark's Gospel, and Matthew's as well, takes the material about Jesus' works and words and puts it into sections. A section of teaching, of instruction. Think of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And it's a full sermon that is recorded or given to us of the type of teaching that Jesus did. And that's followed in chapters 8 and 9 with miracles that Jesus did. And then it's followed by a message that Jesus gave to his disciples with reference to their ministry going forth into uh, the cities of uh, uh, the cities of Israel uh, to preach the gospel. Jesus sends them forth as missionary teams to preach the gospel. So you have instruction, teaching, words, and then works. So words followed by works. Then more words followed by works. Then more words followed by works. In sections. In sections. You have a block of teaching that are words, block of teaching that are works, and blocks of teaching that structure the way they teach. Luke is all over the map. <laughs> Luke doesn't really give you major sections of teaching. I know we have what's called the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6, and uh, that's a sermon that Jesus gives in the backdrop of the problem of persecution. There's usually something that's happening. As Luke is telling the story of Jesus, he's giving you a narrative. He's giving you this occurred, and in the light of what occurred, Jesus taught something relative to the thing that occurred. And people are talking to him about the tower, the asylum that fell upon people. And Jesus responds with words of instruction, 
with respect to it. People tell him about the, the, um, the, the, the beauty of the temple and words follow. Well, we have that a little bit in Matthew and Mark. That's a sort of instruction that Jesus gives. He's moving us back and forth between works and words. What makes Luke's account distinct is that the locations for these words and works are made clear divisions. What I mean by that is that in chapter 4 and verse 12 to chapter 9 and verse 50, what Luke does is he gives us an account of words and works. The marvelous words and the mighty works of our Lord Jesus that were done in greater Galilee. They were done in the north. They were done in the region of his home in Nazareth, because of chapter 4. It was done in Capernaum, where he had taken up his own headquarters in his Galilean ministry. It was done around the Sea of Galilee. But Luke is not concerned really to tell us much about the places. A name is mentioned as along with Nazareth and along with Capernaum. But he's not really telling us much about the places Jesus ministered in, nor is he concerned to tell us much about the chronology. He's not concerned about the time. First this, then this, then this, then this. He's concerned to mingle together mighty words, uh, majestic words and mighty works as they're done in that region of greater Galilee. Not great specificity in terms of the details concentrating the mind of the reader upon Jesus in his majestic words and in his mighty works. Jesus simply going through the villages and cities of Galilee, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom of God to all who will hear. And then in chapter 9 and verse 51 to chapter 19 and verse 40, we have again more of the majestic words and mighty works of Jesus, but now no longer in Galilee in its regions. Now we're on the road. Now we're on the road. In chapter 9 and verse 51, I'm sorry, verse 41, chapter 9 and verse 51, I guess it is 51. We read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. From this point forward, Jesus is on the road. Everything from chapter 9 and verse 51 all the way to 1940, we have the mighty words and works of Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. That throughout the passage, we're being told that he, on the path, encountered this. And on the way, something else occurred. The consciousness of making progress to the eventual coming to the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus would ultimately give up his life a ransom for many, that is clearly the way Luke structures his gospel. So you have Jesus' birth, preparation for ministry, Ministry around greater Galilee, and now we're on the road to the cross. We're on the road to which our Lord sets his face to go to Jerusalem, 
and we hear, we, we hear of his mighty, his majestic words and mighty works all the way that leads on that pathway that comes to the city of Jerusalem. And then in 22, verses 1 to 23, verse 56, we have the passion narrative in Luke's account of our Lord's betrayal, of our Lord's arrest, of his being led out to the cross to die. And then in chapter 24, verse 1 to 53, we have his resurrection, his appearances to his disciples as well as something added that Mark does not give us and Matthew does not give us an account of our Lord's ascension. Well, that's the structure of the gospel. Origins, preparation, greater Galilean ministry on the road. Going to Jerusalem, coming to Jerusalem, passion narrative, resurrection, and ascension. That's the way that Luke tells the story. It's a memorable way, isn't it? But what's the story itself that he's telling? Well, again, like Mark's gospel, clearly it's one of Israel's God coming in human flesh. It's the story of Jesus coming and entering into a ministry of grace and salvation and fulfillment of the promises of God. It's a story of Jesus coming into the world in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Uh, Peter uses the expression to be a prince and a savior. To be one who leads his people, shepherds his people, guides his people, guards his people, and rescues his people from their sins. It's one of granting repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. I think Luke's special contribution to the picture of Jesus' saving work is the way that Luke emphasizes the dimensions of the saving work of Jesus, the fullness of who it incorporates. If this was a narrative that was simply written by the average person in Israel, it would look to favor a certain group of people that were the people who were the insiders. The outsiders would be definitively left out. If you left it to popular opinion, who should be the recipients of the benefits of this salvation? Who should be the who should be on the poster, the poster child of the gospel? It would be the wealthy. It would be the Jewish. It would be the rich and the the the, the males, the men. Not rather than the women. And yet, it was definitely the, the, the people that are well and strong and athletic and powerful. These are the people we parade around as the great advocates of the Christian gospel. Man, if we could get a rich person saved, look, think of all the money we could have to do gospel work. I heard actually an evangelist Chiming in, that opinion on the radio. And I'm sure he's not the only one that's offered that opinion. If we could get a, an athlete saved, man, get somebody who throws touchdowns for Jesus, that's going to promote the gospel. We get all the people interested in athletics to look at that person as the role model for what Christianity does and what Christianity brings and what Christianity offers. 
Let's get somebody who's a, a celebrity, one of the world's celebrities. Let's get Kanye West aboard. The work of holding worship services on Sunday. You want to trust that guy as a teacher and a leader? But how many people are actually looking to him when he was talking about his Christian conversion? That these are the people we want to get on the bandwagon to be the leaders, to be the poster boys and the poster people for the Christian gospel. What goes just the opposite direction, folks? To quote the praise song of Mary that was read earlier, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Jesus speaks of his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61 in the synagogue of Nazareth in chapter 4 where he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor, to the nobodies. He sent me to proclaim liberty to who? The people that need it, the captives. The recovery of the sight to who? Not the people that think they see so well, but the blind. He set at liberty the oppressed. He comes in the name of Israel's God, the God of the widow and the orphan. Jesus speaks about how there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet, and to none of them was Elijah sent, but to a widow of Zarephath. Not a covenant woman. Not a woman of Israel's lineage. God bypassed many of the widows in Israel. Sent a prophet to a Gentile. Many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha. God passed them all by. And brought healing to a Syrian named Naaman. Jesus tells stories about Samaritans more righteous than Levites and priests. He tells stories about publicans who are justified while Pharisees go home in their guilt. He tells about the invitation that the gospel gives to the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame, invited to the gospel feast while the people so preoccupied with their own things, the things of this life, the things of their wealth and their power and their own interests are simply left out. I'm not saying the gospel is not to be preached to the rich. I'm not saying the gospel is not to be preached to the healthy and the wealthy and all the rest. But I'm saying this is not a gospel about health and wealth. It's a gospel about the mighty hand of God at work for the salvation of the nobodies of the world. Paul can write to a church in Corinth and say, You see your calling, brethren, not many mighty after the flesh, not many noble. God's chosen the nobodies of this world to confound the wise. A bunch of nobodies. 
bring them to the knowledge of his grace and salvation. Well, the people in high places, so filled with themselves and so filled with their own sense of their own interests and power, they're simply left out of the greater blessings of this life. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who died sumptuously every single day of his life. And a poor beggar outside of the gates and hardly enough to eat at all. And then a day of reckoning. The rich man died and awoke in the flames of agony. And the poor man died and went into the very presence of God, into the bosom of Abraham, into the very blessings and culminating realities that belong to the covenant people of the living God. There's one other thing that Luke does that is not done by the other Gospels. He uses something of the language of what Jesus does when he comes into this world to save the nobodies of this world. And he uses the language of the seeking of the lost. The seeking of the lost. You don't read of people being lost in the other Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, people are lost. There are lost sheep. There are lost coins. There's a lost son. Jesus says, the son of, Luke, Luke says about Jesus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know the horrible thing about life and sin is that we're lost to our true purpose. We're lost to the very reason of our being. The idea of being lost is just not fulfilling the very destiny for which God has created man in his image and in his likeness, which is to know him, to love him, to follow him, to serve him, to bless him, to praise him. And someone who's lost is like that son who just goes out to seek things on his own, away from his father's love, away from the blessings of his father's house, until he comes to himself and realizes the lostness of his own life. And even servants in his father's house have it better have it better off than he does. With a sense that he is in desperate need, dire need. He does the, probably the last thing that was in his mind when he left his father's house. He's going to return. And he's going to go back. And he's going to humble himself. And he's going to say, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And he encounters a God who says, no, no, no. I restore you to all of my love. All of what I desire for you. What I've designed my son to receive. Get out the fatted calf. Get out all the blessings. My son who was lost is now found. It's the story of the son of man who comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost people amongst the Jews, yes, but lost among the Gentiles as well. Lost people that have bowed before the idols of their wealth, yes, but poor people have nothing of this world's good at all, also. The well of this world, who are often prone to trust in their health, who come to grips with the reality of how things could change in a moment, Jesus has come to save them, but also the people in the depths of their misery and pain, of all of their 
disabilities and all of their diseases and all of their problems and troubles find a home in the Father's house, find a place in the Father's love. It's a story of one who went to the cross to proclaim pardon to a penitent thief and to give forth his own promise of a place in the Father's house, of a return to the garden of Edenic paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Luke is a story, simply put, of the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in your grace and salvation. We rejoice that you've not left us to ourselves, that you have intervened in the affairs of human history by sending your Son, that he has come, he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Father, we confess that in our sins we were lost to you, we were lost to everything that was designed for us as creatures made in your image and likeness. We fed ourselves upon the garbage of this world that the pigs feed upon, and we thought this was nourishing, and this was healthy, and this was good. We're thankful, Lord, for the grace that has brought us to ourselves, for the grace that has brought us to see our neediness, and the grace that has brought us to see the fullness of your sufficient plan in our Lord Jesus to save us from our sins, to bring us into the banqueting house of your love, to bring us into the full realization of all of the blessings that you have designed for your image bearers, though fallen yet now restored through Christ's death and resurrection. We're thankful we're part of that story. We're thankful that we're part of that redeemed community of people who look to you for your grace and salvation. We bless your holy name for all that you are and all that in your grace you've given us so freely. We pray that we would be a people that would be filled with praise for the gospel, filled with praise for Christ and his, his accomplished work, the things that have most surely been accomplished among us. Help us, Lord, to live in their light. Help us to, pr to proclaim them with our lips. Help us to show forth the good of it in our lives. Help us to seek to bring honor and glory to the one who has blessed us so abundantly and so richly. We ask you to receive our, our praise and thanksgiving. Be pleased, Lord, to hear the cries of our hearts as we come before you. In Jesus' name, amen.